Welcome to the RSP Cast Scout Talk. Joining me, as always, is the Director of Player Personnel for the Edmonton Elks, Mr. Russ Landy. Russ, always a pleasure, man. It's great to be here. Back on the mend. Excited to uh, be talking ball with Matt. There's nothing better. Yeah, we're going to wish wish Russ Landy well here with his uh, little bit of an ACL tear playing some hockey, huh? Yeah, blew that sucker out. Got a nice new cadaver one in my knee. So uh, two weeks ago today. So well, we're... Uh, only 50 weeks away from being full speed. <laughs> there we go. But, you know, I'm the, I'm the men doing the rehab. Everything's going to be, you know, I'll be looking forward to meeting up with you. And we'll, yeah. uh, we'll soon I'll be skating just as slow on the ice as I was before. See, there you go. <laughs> well, today we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to skate a little faster than that, at least over some topics that we're going to talk about. We'll explore them in depth. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the Lamar Jackson, um, you know, contract issue and his, and his, um, you know availability and what you know maybe dive a little deeper into that and what some things that maybe people don't realize about this when they're shouting potential collusion um we're also going to cover positional coaches in the nfl talk about um you know why their careers seem to be uh, in many cases jumping from one spot to the other why they have like a very long resume with one or two year type of opportunities on and not all of them but why some of them are that way um we'll also cover pro days the difference between pro days and the combine um when it comes to how the nfl and and cfl look at um the differences in terms of these workouts and why they do that and also we'll wrap it up with maybe some conversation about zach evans who i just did a twitter um series of threads on his vision last night his decision making because he might be to me the most intriguing and at the same time maybe riskiest of the high end prospects in a good running back class so um we'll we'll cover that and get started here with lamar jackson because look the 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 ravens decided look we're gonna we're gonna tag him in a way where we're gonna get a couple of first round picks but we're not gonna take him off the market completely and there are people who are saying, well, he's, you know, there's arguments about whether he's an elite quarterback or whether he's not an elite quarterback. And I think it's complicated. And we're going to get into that complicated thing that we've talked about with him before. But why that plays into the way NFL teams are, because there's a lot of quarterback needy teams. And they're saying, no, we're not going to pursue him. And people are thinking, well, it's the NFL and it's a conspiracy theory that they're trying to say. If Lamar Jackson gets what he wants here, then it's going to open the floodgates for other players and it's going to give the Players Association a lot more power than they do. And the NFL desperately wants to stop this. And, you know, where well, where do you stand with this? Well, firstly, we can't make, there's no mistake about the fact that for years, this isn't just a Lamar Jackson because of Deshaun Watson. For the past 15 years, you've constantly heard there's the NBA, there's the NHL, there's Major League Baseball. As soon as you sign the contract, you get all the money. It's guaranteed no matter what. Why is the NFL different? And for years, you know, owners, even separately, have said, of course, yeah, we're not guaranteeing the money. There's too much injury risk. There's turnover, all these things. So it doesn't even have to be them discussing it. They all know this, that as soon as you start guaranteeing contracts, it literally becomes almost impossible. After a few injuries, your roster can be destroyed. But I think there's so many more things that go into this that, that people aren't really sort of paying attention to is, hey, we all know what Lamar is. This kid changes games. He's a very unique player. Um, he's a very unique person in terms of the, the, the passion you see when he plays, his love of the game. Something I think is missing a lot <clears throat> from a lot of players is they don't seem to love the game in addition to love playing. He loves football. You can tell it just watching him. He wants to be out there. But he also, the offense that was created sort of around him to take advantage of his unique skill set has made him a superstar. And that offense is predicated on short area throws and deep passing and primarily being a run-based offense. And I think over the past really 10, 15 years as analytics and uh, if anybody's going to know numbers and data, Matt knows this, is the analytics have shown over and over and over when you throw the ball, you have a better chance of getting the lead and you have a wider margin for error to win. You can definitely win running the ball, but 
your margin for error is smaller. So every turnover, when you run the ball, has a greater effect and a better chance of causing you to lose. So when you look at that, you look at how many teams are really analytic driven in terms of coaching decisions, maybe not in personnel, maybe not in those areas, but in terms of coaching philosophy, most teams want to throw the ball and they don't want to just throw short stuff and throw the deep ball occasionally. They want to use the whole field. And I think a lot of teams look at it and say, hey, Lamar is, bit, is a great quarterback and he has been tremendously successful doing this, but it's been in a run first based offense that allows him to really take advantage of his skill set and be phenomenal. And I think a lot of teams say, well, we don't want to run a run first based offense. And because of that, I think some teams are probably saying, you know what? A, how close to guaranteeing this contract are we going to have to be? A, then B, two first-round picks. And then C, a run-based offense, which we're not really thrilled about doing. And then probably the last part is, remember, this guy's missed time in the last two years due to injuries. And in a run-based offense where he's going to carry the ball, there's going to be more likely injuries as he gets older. So all of it combined, I can understand why teams are nervous. I also look at it and say, hey, it's hard to win without a quarterback. So if you don't have anybody and you're literally playing with guys who are awful and backups, maybe it's time for you to think outside the box and say, hey, it may not be what we really want to do, but is it better to win than to go at it with below average quarterbacks and lose? Yeah, and it's a, it's, it opens up a lot of follow-ups that we can look at and to explore because – First, the, the whole idea of Lamar Jackson and what he can and can't do. And I think that that's, that's the part that a lot of people can, it, it's a nuanced conversation that a lot of people can gloss over in one bad direction or another. Because first of all, is he an elite quarterback? He can be an elite quarterback. So, you know, one of the things about his, his game is that yeah he can be an elite quarterback in terms of production but the way that it, the way that production has to be tailored i can see why teams don't want that because for the you know when you look statistically and on film at his game the outside the numbers that's where he's not quite as good as a lot of other quarterbacks he's great in the middle of the field now at the same time when you're great at one thing in the middle of the field, but everyone knows you're not great at the power throws outside the hash, that means that the run game has to work. So like you said, the margin of error, we break that down. Part of that margin for error is, well, teams know that you're not going to throw the deep outs, the deep comebacks. You're not doing that very well. They want you to do that. That's not going to happen. So they're going to guard the middle of the field. They also know that if they take away the run, then it's a little bit easier for them to to take away some of the middle of the field where it makes it a little bit harder for them to throw there. So now, even if that's his great strength, if you're, if you're have injuries up front along the offensive line and not providing him enough um, protection, if your running back room isn't quite as strong. Um, and I know that, you know, some of the data shows that the running backs have been fine with whoever they've, they've put in there. And I, and I can understand maybe from certain efficiencies that looks that way, but we're still talking about context of down and distance and what happens with the playbook. And sometimes those numbers don't really show enough contextually. You, you know, you can't look at what they had and say a healthy J.K. Dobbins wouldn't have dramatically changed what happens with how defenses play things. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and then on top of that, having an injured you know, having an injured tight end room and you're relying on a rookie tight end, even if the rookie's getting production. Well, it's kind of like saying Hunter Henry is a rookie getting, you know, double-digit touchdowns because Antonio Gates was the guy getting covered. Doesn't mean that Hunter Henry was a great tight end as a rookie. It just meant that he played great as a rookie and got the benefit of the, the, the you know, of the defense covering somebody else or Chase Claypool in his first year at the, with the Steelers. So when you look at Isaiah Likely, you know, you don't want us to go, well, you know, we can plug that one-to-one -one into the equation. So with Jackson, even the injury part, you watch him as a runner, and I would argue when I watch him on tape, he rarely gets touched. He's rarely touched when he gets out of bounds. He gains 7, 8, 10, 12 yards and rarely gets touched. But the problem is, is, it only takes once, 
You know, that's what the one thing people get worried about. And the other is that if you're playing from the pocket and as good as he is staying in the pocket, when your protection isn't quite as good and you're dealing with constant pressure because they know what you can't do and they can hem you in like this and make your job tougher, now you're dealing with an, a, a higher risk for all that. And I think teams see that holistically. Maybe they can't articulate it all the time, but they see that and say, it's just, like you said, it's just too many things for us to want to go down that route road if we don't have to um, exactly and that's, and, and, and the, the area i'll compare it to and I'm, i don't mean to interrupt no, you please. that is not so much quarterback related but i look at it sort of there's a little bit of a cliff kingsbury tie-in because kingsbury came in with his offense like this is what we're running regardless of the skill set of kyla murray i'm running my offense that we ran at tcu and or uh, texas tech and within a year, NFL teams started saying, okay, you want to run your offense. We know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, it's we don't have to defend the whole field vertically and horizontally because of what you're doing. Well, if you don't force, and Kingsbury did not in that offense, force the defense to cover the whole field vertically and horizontally, it becomes easier to defend. Yeah. So it's not so much that Lamar can't do it. He has not proven yet that certain throws, especially the ones outside the numbers, are going to be as consistent as his throws inside the numbers. So what is the defense going to do? And they started to do it the last two years. They're going to force the middle to be compact, say, beat us over, make the throws over, make yeah. those 18-yard out throws, which are not easy for anybody. Yeah. Nonetheless, a quarterback who has not been as proficient at that. So anytime a defense can start dictating to the offense, it's scary. And I think that combined with, like you were saying, run-based, injury history, and having a guarantee. And the thing we shouldn't also underestimate is, I guarantee you Baltimore has been working hard to get this deal done for a year now. At some point, they probably said, you know what? We could franchise them where nobody can negotiate, and we can keep going down this road for the next two, three, four months and try to get something done. Or let's let somebody else try this negotiating. Maybe somebody else can figure out a way to get something done and maybe they told them, hey, if you think you can get somebody to guarantee your deal, go. But if you can't and nobody will do it, here's the deal we want to agree on. And he may, they may have already come up with a number. Yeah. They may have said, hey, if you can't get a deal that guarantees you a full amount, this is where we're willing to go. And he might have said, hey, give me a month to see if there's a way to beat that. Because if they do, if somebody will come up with that, then you'll match it. But if nobody else will do it, then we'll come back and we'll figure out a way to make that deal workable. Yeah. Still, probably have to negotiate, but workable. And they got a they got an they got a coach in Todd Munkin who is very who is well known for adjusting scheme to his players. So yep. it's not like they probably put him and said, "Look, we got a guy that we feel like is going to be, you know, if if you feel like you're limited, um, you were limited by Greg Roman in some way, or if that's just a me more of a media construct." You, you could look at that and, and say, well, we've got someone new. We're going to be able to work with you. He's proven to be able to work with people. You know, we've got you in a situation where we can set you up to win. We're healthier. We'd like to have you back, but we don't want to cripple our team doing that. So you understand yep. if you understand that, then knock yourself out. Take a look at it. We'll draft a kid if that doesn't work out. And then and we'll go from here. You know? And also, you got to figure and you, you know this as well as I do. Everybody talks to everybody in the NFL. If nobody makes this kid an offer, it's either A, the confluence of reasons that we talked about, and B, they may also know no matter what we offer, the Ravens are going to match. Like if they have found this out from doing their homework, that the Ravens have just said, let somebody else negotiate this contract, but we're going to match it, why are they going to go through the effort? Yeah. If they know they're not going to get them, yeah. do they want to spend hours and hours, and probably hundreds of hours, trying to get a deal done that's just going to get matched yeah. so i think that's part of it too i think there's a lot of things that go into this it isn't just it's collusion because i uh, trust me it's to me the most unique situation ever when was the last time if ever a 26 year old mvp with impeccable great character has been available for two first round picks yeah it's never happened yeah and that's why it's such a unique situation yeah and i think that we do we like to find especially in today's age a simple answer when there aren't simple answers and and he is not a simple answer he's never no. been and every and the reason why there's so much 
made about him that can be wrong is because everyone's trying to find simple answers with him his entire exactly. career. And yep, I mean, just, just remember chapter. when he came out and we talked about it. Everybody wanted to label him a running quarterback, which I get. He's a rare runner. He's a great athlete. But people didn't want to, and you, and you were the first to mention, and when I watched the film, we sort of agreed, is that for a guy that is a rare athlete and can change games running, he has remarkable patience and feel within the pocket. And that's something you don't see very often of the great athletes. Usually they jump out of the pocket. They're not willing to wait. He's very patient and calm in the pocket. But nobody wanted to talk about that when he was coming out. They didn't want to get yeah. into those discussions. No, I mean, Russ, if, listen, if if Kyler Murray gets kidnapped, um, the first suspect will probably be me. And you need to go look in my basement because I will have him duct taped to a chair watching Lamar Jackson pocket work from film and saying and basically saying you know making him watch that now i don't think that's going to work out well for me if that happened but <laughs> but but you know i might not be able to catch him in the first place you no know? this is true although yeah. right now while he's rehabbing maybe <laughs> maybe you know but this would be a perfect i mean to me you know they are so polar opposites in how they handle the pocket and it's a and it's a but they're so similar in terms of how athletically um, exciting stop-start movement, reacceleration, prolonging plays. It's just one is just an absolute stud in tight spaces in the pocket, and the other one creates havoc for both defenses and his offensive line and receivers. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, Lamar is, he is not an easy evaluation when you watch the film because yeah. he's counter to so many things. When you look at a great athletic quarterback, a lot of the time you expect them to give up on the play so quickly, start running, almost almost always sort of uh, vacating through the back of the pocket, things like that. He's the complete opposite of a great athletic quarterback. He is a pocket passer who just happens to have these rare physical traits that give him an added dimension. So I'm going to go kind of off script here with this because it's a it's a, it kind of applies, and I'll recommend to folks if you want to learn more. I did a quarterback A through A through Z essentially of of the quarterbacks that I've watched thus far for um, for the 2023 draft class. But Anthony Richardson, let me tell you, Russ, um, he fits into that conversation very well because you know he blew the doors off the combine, obviously, and everyone says he's raw. Like you hear all, not everyone, but there's well, a lot of people say, saying just about, he's, yeah. he's just raw. Let me tell you, man, he's got great pocket presence like Lamar Jackson. Like great pocket presence. Wow. And, I mean, like incremental movements, understands when to bait defenders within a step, understands when to to um, embed movement out of his drop. He knows how to manipulate defenders um, while he's climbing a pocket or climbing and flushing to a side and can literally throw guys open. Like to me, the analogy I made was this. Imagine like if you're a, Imagine if you sent um, U.S. students to Vietnam. They had learned the Vietnamese language. They've taken some classes for years, and they're they've had some conversational type of practice. And they're now they're getting ready to get immersed into the real deal, where they have to really speak it. And they're going to spend some time there. And you send the first set of guys. There's maybe you know ten or twelve of these people that go over to Vietnam to Ho Chi Minh City, and they've They've been there two to four years, okay? They've had a chance to learn the culture. They've learned, you know, when they go certain places at night, you don't want to go. Certain street vendors are going to rip you off. Certain people have little scams of what they're trying to do to get money out of you. And they've learned all that by basically spending two to four years out there. But they're still having to have people in, in Ho Chi Minh City repeat themselves multiple times, say it slowly, maybe use a Google translator. They don't understand the nuances of like jokes or humor. They don't express emotion very well in that language. It's all very kind of academic step by step. When I say that Anthony Richardson is raw, Anthony Richardson's raw in the sense of when he goes to Vietnam and he's only been there for one year, they sent him last year. He's, he's the guy that probably got got taken by a street vendor, probably got scammed a little bit here, went into the wrong neighborhood a couple of times, and you go, ooh, I don't know if this guy's going to survive compared to these people who've been here two to four years. 
But what they don't see and haven't noticed or spent time looking at is that he doesn't need Google Translator. He actually speaks at the speed of a native. He listens at the speed of a native. He can multitask at the speed of a native speaker and express emotion and hear the emotion that they're doing. He's made friends quicker and he's been able to like, like get in and out of these situations where maybe he's embarrassed himself a few times, but um, he's been able to like grow quickly and actually turn things around where maybe he's he's been able to like get the better of some people trying to con him because uh, he's kind of caught them. So is he going to go to the NFL with his 58% completion percentage and like misread a cover two because he's only seen a disguise for cover two a few times less or a number of times less than the guy who's been in the league in NCA, you know, for as a starter for three or four years? Yeah. But are they going to be able to climb a pocket under heavy pressure, shake a defender, be, keep their feet under them, slide out to one side and manipulate two defenders while he was doing that to find the open over route and throw the guy open to where only he can make the catch. And he's shown that like, oh, I don't know, uh, at least a dozen times on his tape. You know, that's that's the thing. Like, I'd rather have the guy w who can integrate all these things that can't be taught. No um, or that's hard to talk then the guy who like well you missed that cover too we don't want to have you because you you threw the hitch on a cover too um to a guy and you yeah i didn't see it um and and what's funny is you know like i've talked about um you know will will hewlett who's the quarterback coach for him you know he told me he's an elite learner like he is an, he's an elite learner he's probably one of the quickest learners both on film on the whiteboard and on the field that I have ever worked with. Um, oh, wow. And that's a pretty big statement. That's a pretty big statement. And somebody I saw who, you know, I won't mention names because last year he was saying that he was interviewing Florida coaches and they were saying, we don't know, he's got a long way to go. And then this year, apparently, or last month, he's saying, um, I was at a, I was at a, um, or somebody I know was at a high school event with him or early, late high school where he it was at some sort of, um, some sort of event and I mistook him for a coach for him in, when he was installing the offense. I thought he was a coach. I wow. didn't know that he was a, he was a player. Um, so it's, he's going to be an interesting player, but when you look at what raw is, I think what happens is that we see the athlete, we see certain mistakes and we don't, sometimes we don't prioritize what is a learnable mistake a teachable moment and what's something that that's hard to learn if you don't know it by this stage of the game. And I think also sometimes people just innately because they're not studying the film, they're just watching a game. They don't realize that just because a guy is a rare athlete and can pull the rabbit out of the hat when the play starts to go sideways, that does not make him raw. Yeah. That's just a wonderful talent that guys like Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson have doesn't mean that they're raw. Now, are there guys you're going to look at and they may have a wind-up delivery and they may have awful footwork, but what's correctable and what's not? Yeah. And if you get the sense when you watch the guy that he can figure out, oh, I'm going through my progressions, I can figure out where the coverage is going. And he may make a mistake here and there, but do you generally get the feel that mentally, in a game, he's making the right decisions, he understands concepts, he's not throwing it to the guy, he's throwing it to where he's going to be, those types of things point towards, oh, this guy's going to get it. Yeah. Again, this is why I'm hoping to be able to figure out a way to do my quarterback study this year. Right. <laughs> yeah, because those are the things that, like, you know, people, this is the thing about scouting that I don't think people realize a lot is that there's, or football in general, football knowledge is siloed. You know, there's X and O's people, there are trainers, there are, um, you know, biomechanical engineers, their stats people, their scouts. And scouts kind of combine a little bit of a lot of things. Um, there's coaches on top of that. So like the, there's a lot of people who do X's and O's in our media who are fantastic. But when no I doubt. watch them scout, the opportunities that I would see, and I know you would see and have seen, is that sometimes they're more like, well, he didn't see the cover too, so that's a problem. Where it's like, that may be elementary to you, but it's an elementary thing. If you're looking at a guy who literally has like 
while under pressure is looking to one side of the field knows that he has his his third read in the flat and then decides to manipulate in two different ways to get that guy open all the while while he's navigating a tight pocket and he can do that and make the wide open throw and you can and he does that repeatedly why are you worried about that he forgot that he just had a lapse with something that's easy to teach because it's kind of like it's kind of like someone who answers word problems well but they just had a lapse with um, saying two times three equals six because they thought they heard you say two times four, you know, yep. they, and that's like, that's not as important, but people, they, they overweight that stuff because they don't think it's almost like thinking in a literary sort of sense. It's like, you can be someone who understands grammar, but if you're looking at good writing, part of that is telling the story. Do you understand the elements of how a story is told? And I think that we have, within, in that siloed facet with scouting, one of the problems is, is that people people don't understand how to put the weight on what matters. You know? Well, I so. think also part of it is, I think when you get into doing it via just X's and O's, and you're just watching the film and saying, okay, they're in two or they're in quarters or zone and man and whatever it may be, you get so into that, you get into, you're almost analyzing it objectively. Like, okay, here's what the coverage, the play should be going here, as opposed to something that I think is a little bit more difficult, requires a little bit more, instead of maybe watching it one or two times, because you can play it, you know the coverage, you play it again, oh, did he throw to the right spot? Sometimes you got to watch that play eight, nine, ten times yes. and sort of get that subjective thing. You know what? I think he missed the read when he started to go back. But as he sat in the pocket, he realized, okay, it's not, he, it is what I, or he's still going with his missed read. But if it's my missed read, then my guy over here is going to be open. So I'm going to go back to him. And that guy's open, so he's correct. But he missed the read. So you want to kill him. And you, but sometimes the more film you watch, little nuanced things. And the reality I look at it is, yes, it's important that you can't have guys who are not mentally strong at the position. I get that. But it's about the whole thing. You have to have that pocket presence, the awareness, and the in-game mental awareness. Not yeah. just, can I go rope by numbers? Oh, this guy's lying there. This guy's here. I know this is cover three, and they're rolling this way. Or it's it's three whatever. It's three cloud, and this is how it's coming. No. Sometimes guys have to be able to adjust, and they see something. Every once in a while, you hear a great quarterback, and you'll say, why did you go to that? Well, when I walked up, and I knew they were doing this, but this guy was step to step more to this side i knew that even though i shouldn't be doing this that guy was going to be open because he was one step off the trigger yep. and those are the things that when you watch a guy over and over beat defenses even when he may misread it initially it makes you think you know what as he gets coached and gets more time and this becomes a full-time job he has a chance to become special whereas guys who don't have that innate ability they can become good but maybe they don't have because they don't have that innate pocket awareness poise and ability to sort of create and figure things out, which is a subjective thing, not objective, that those guys have a chance to go higher in terms of becoming yeah. higher, higher ceiling. Because it's such a performance sport, it's like it's like you're you're grading poetry. You know, you're not grading like a, basically an essay in, in grade school where you're looking for everything to be grammatically correct. And, you know, it's like if you're going to teach someone to do poetry, recite poetry or do stand up comedy, you're not going to, you know, it, school would tell you, well, you, first of all, you need to learn how to speak well. So you need to be articulate and you need to be able to speak this way and form sentences this way. We're going to enroll you in Toastmasters and then we're going to have you do these types of things. And they're hoping that all these separate things they have you do, like study grammar, be able to write clear sentences, go to Toastmasters, and then somehow experience of being in a comedy club, you're going to be good. But you're going to come across stiff. You're not going to be real because people who are going to come up and do great comedy are going to break the rules of grammar. They're not going to sound like a Toastmaster speech. They're going to they're going to have certain elements of things that you could probably take and put into a Toastmasters. But you're going to be you're going to have bad grammar. You're going to have funny isms of their personality. They're going to come out that make it that make it feel real and genuine. And they're going to talk about things that they shouldn't talk about, especially yep. 
you know and that's what makes it work that's and it's the same thing with when you're on the stage as a quarterback it's like i don't care you know that's why it's like the whole whiteboard thing that's great that's important to a degree but it's not any it's not more important as we've talked about than all the things that you just mentioned you know so so no it's a, it, it, it i and i still believe it to this day it is the most enjoyable and at the same time most frustrating and hard position to evaluate yes. by far because there are so many subjective things yes that affect their ability to make it at the top level and i don't think people want to give credit to how hard it is yeah. to be a successful quarterback yeah. it isn't one thing you can't identify one little thing from a combine or from film or from watching x's nose there's a whole conglomerate of things Yes. And it isn't just simple dimple to figure out which guys can play. That's the hardest position in sports. It's got to be the hardest position yeah. in sports. I mean, the only thing that I would say is harder is is basically, you know, combat fighting. You, you know, <laughs> that you know, at least you know, I mean, because of all the different things you have to learn with that. But like anyway, you know, let's talk about position coaches then because you know, one of the things that you know, that comes into scouting is a lot of people will say, well, they'll get in the NFL and they'll get coached up. And we've talked a lot about how position coaches spend a lot of time on game plan and, and also anything that they do impart on a quarterback, they still got to practice. And that practice ends up taking lower priority to develop these skills until the off season anyhow. And they're doing a little bit of the day and they're letting grass grow. But like when it comes down to their game plan, if a guy has a weird hitch in his giddy up when he's trying to throw the football set up to throw, he's probably not going to be thinking about trying to fix that when he's trying to make sure he understands the game plan and he's a rookie and he's still just struggling to learn the playbook and he's still struggling to deal with the speed and complexity of NFL defenses and coverage disguises that he's never seen and then the media and the money and all the different things. He's thinking, I'll get to this other stuff later because if I start focusing on this, everything else is going to fall apart uh, and they're freaking out. So... And, and it, it really is interesting, and I've been to part. I've been on staffs where there were great coaches from top to bottom, and other staffs where it was a little bit inconsistent. But when you're at practice, and this is one of the things I will say, I give Butch Davis a lot of credit for when he was our, our head coach at Cleveland. He told us when we went to the colleges, take note of the position coaches that stand out, because it's hard to find young guys that are really attention to detail, can teach their position that we can bring in as quality control guys and help them work their way up. So when we would go to colleges, we would take very, I shouldn't say we, I can't say every single scout did, but I know me, myself, Kevin Kelly, we were very on top of every school we went to. We knew the position coaches that were really, really good, especially the young guys. We also knew the ones that we didn't think were particularly good. And we would make sure that this information was given to Butch so that if we had to bring in a young guy, you had that because position coaching is a whole different ball game than being a coordinator. A coordinator is sort of big picture, schematic thinking, whereas position coaches, the good ones, they have the ability to be big picture, but they're really good at the little fundamental things of both teaching and motivating. And those are two different things. And some coaches are only good at one or the other. And that's why I was fortunate. Like when I was at the uh, Browns, we had Terry Rabisky as our receiver coach. He's one of the best I've ever seen. He could teach his players the fundamentals day in and day out of practice. But he also had a way of figuring out each kid's mental makeup and how to get them to work hard and do the things necessary to succeed. Some coaches that can do that, like Terry, he could literally, if he wanted, he could, stay, could have stayed in one city as the receiver coach for his whole career. And there are other guys I've been around that just, are not good. Yeah. You watch them and they don't teach. Or there are other guys that are great, but they don't interact well with others because they're so focused just on their position. They don't want to worry about anything, the bigger picture and how their players are going to integrate. So there's reason certain guys sort of develop reputations and stay with the same teams and excel. Other times there are guys that are very good position coaches that jump around because they're so good at coaching, but maybe they don't always work well within the constraints of I'm going to make everybody better. I'm just worried about my position. And then there's the other ones that are just bad coaches. Yeah. And it's fascinating because you, it's hard to tell because when you're from the outside, because you can look at some guys and, and I would see, you know, for instance, I'll see there's a guy I remember looking at who 
you know, is coaching in college football right now, but has a long career in the NFL. But all his gigs are one-year things, are one-year things. And then what's fascinating to me is that he's known for coaching a position, and I'm watching the kid that is going to be known for known as a as a quality prospect and i'm looking at the things that he has to learn technically and i'm like you know i look at that from the outside and maybe there's and it, and it may be too simplistic because it's very possible that this kid doesn't listen well maybe the kid is maybe there's other things going on maybe the the the, the coach i'm talking about because he's handling two things at once can't devote the time the way that he used to to the position. Um, but when I watch this kid, to me, it's a reflection of the coach because he, you know, he's supposed to be ready. And I'm looking at him going, if he had this guy as his coach, who's based on his resume, he should be much further along than he is. And he's not. And then when I look at that long string of like here, 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 here every year, that's but that's not even a reliable way to go it's hard to say it's know? really hard because i mean you think about a position coach has so much to do because he's got to teach his guys and work on each individual player identifying what they do and don't do well technically so he has to fix that then he has to teach them okay this is the scheme we're playing here are your assignments and here's how you're going to carry them out so he has to do both of those things in addition to motivating getting those players to buy in so really, a really good position coach can do teaching the fundamentals. He can teach how those fundamentals and each individual player fits within the scheme they're going to do and what their assignments are within that scheme and find a way to get each guy to be motivated to play the best of their ability, even if they're not starters. So there's a lot of things that go into it. Certain guys are great at doing that and also being a part of things. They feel, and most of them do this, most of them, do those things and they also feel hey i want to i want to make sure everything i do i'm i'm in in step with the coordinator with the other coaches there are other coaches who are so focused on their position that they really don't become part of the how we're integrating certain guys i've been around one or two not a lot but every once in a while you, you're around a coach who is so focused on his position that he disregards and i don't know if that's the exact right word but he doesn't put in the same effort to make sure he is working with the other coaches to make sure that what they want to see executed on the field is what he is yeah. going to make sure is executed from his group. He's siloed just off, little, yeah. Yeah, a little bit siloed off. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just sort of, I'm so focused on making sure my guys are technically sound and doing their job correctly that I sort of burrow down and don't always sort of interact and get that same sort of feel with the other coaches to make sure that what they want done is what I'm teaching. You know, one of and the I think sometimes that's why you see guys moving around is they have a, they don't really sort of find a way to fit. Yeah. And that makes sense. And because there's a demand for guys with skills to teach, they're finding jobs and yes. they're good and they're good in that respect, but they're not great as good as they could be as a result of that and then you think of like one of the things you mentioned with like having to be part you know if you're trying to be if you're a coach and a coordinator and it dividing your time a good example of that was David Cutcliffe and you know when he went from Ole Miss to Duke or Ole Miss Tennessee Ole Miss then to Duke and became a head coach at Duke when Daniel Jones came out um it was you know every what was I had heard from a scout was that that half the league had bought into the idea that Daniel Jones was a Cutcliffe guy, meaning that he had been coached the same way the Mannings had been. And so therefore he was a really worthwhile prospect to have. And then a smaller percentage had heard that Cutcliffe hadn't devoted nearly as much time to Jones as he did the Mannings because he was a head coach. He had other competing interests and that it was not really the same kind of development process that was in place. So he wasn't really a Cutcliffe guy, but Duke went along with that notion because of course, the fact that you're gonna have a first round quarterback heading into the draft is good for your recruiting. 
So anything that they could do to play up that he was a Cutcliffe guy was a great thing to do. But within the org, within Duke, I was told that there were some people that were going, yeah, like I'm the real, the, this guy, he's not a Cutcliffe guy. Doesn't mean he won't be good, but the but where they're playing him up as a, as a lock solid top 15, top 20 pick in the NFL draft, um, based uh, with a lot of weight on this, they shouldn't be doing that, you know, because that's not true. So no, there's no doubt. I mean, and and I think also the other thing I don't think people realize: certain guys are great position coaches, and they can extrapolate and become good coordinators. Other people are great position coaches and are not going to be good coordinators. The the misperception in the public is that there's 32 teams, so almost all the offensive coordinators are good or defensive coordinators are good. The reality is far from the truth. You might be talking 25% of offensive and defensive coordinators really make a significant positive impact. Yeah. Now, another 20% may become that as they grow and develop as, as coaches. But there are a lot that are either not really adding anything or making it worse. And I think one of the unique things, I remember reading Moneyball and hearing how they would analyze the performance of hitters and pitchers based on the coaches, when you look at the coaches and you would see certain coaches would be with certain minor league teams and the hitting would get better. I am seeing that some teams and some companies are starting to analyze coaches and their ability to do certain things. And to me, that to me is the next generation of how you can use analytics better. How do you analyze which coaches are truly good other than the old subject of eye test when I'm at practice? How do you determine, okay, these guys came into the league with certain flaws now they don't have they've almost every receiver they've drafted has at least become a productive player or every quarterback this team has taken has at least survived and become if you look at the patriots almost every quarterback they drafted when belichick was there and mcdaniels was on staff they all developed into at least journeyman backups yeah and that's a rarity when you yeah. think about it most quarterbacks don't become journeyman backups most of them wash out of the league yeah so you look at that and you start saying, what are the things we can start pointing to and identifying in coaches so that we can become better? You know what I mean? That's yeah. and that's and I think that's a great way of looking at it. And the problem is is that we have this grand assumption out in the media about A, like again, that the NFL isn't a siloed thing, that everyone's supposed to know everything about these vast resources of knowledge that require a lot of depth to really become an expert in. Um, and so we've touched on that theme already um, with scouting and the, and the silos of X's and O's and scouting and all that, but it's the same with coaches. And so, I mean, with coordinators, you got these first year coordinators, they come in and sometimes it's the story of they have success early, but it's because of the foundation that was built before them and they've inherited that. And then when more things are demanded of them, they start to fail or they come in and they have success and now they're given an additional level of responsibility that they have no experience with but they're, they're having to do they're having to do work with that or they've got somebody under them that's really good and they've leveraged and leaned off of that so that they can leverage their own strengths and it's it's a very difficult thing you know when you look at coaching or management people really don't understand how you know you they often they either manage people they either bring up people who are lifers who've been with the company for a while and they've served their time and they've been the good soldier um and then then you start to watch them and you realize that they don't have the imagination to recognize or the vision to recognize who's good around them to do the work that needs to be done or they're really good trainers but they're not very good time management people so they have difficulty being able to keep things organized in a matter and there's a lot of details that fall through but the thing that they're devoted to tends to be good or they're great at what they do but they're stretched too thin and they don't delegate well enough and they don't train the people that need to be trained well um and so yeah when you the, the, these are the same things you see in your company. I mean, you're probably listening on your, you know, lunch or on your way home from work. And I'm sure you've dealt with plenty of these people who are in those situations. I mean, I think about one for me as a man, as a young manager, and my strengths were definitely training people like training and developing people. And I was good with that. But it, it's funny because my previous boss who was in that position, 
who was my director at that time, he was a very good motivator. He was more of a rah-rah kind of high energy. Let's have, you know, let's have our workplace have a culture that's kind of more high energy for what we do and was successful with that and could find the right people to lean on to do work and then make key decisions. Where I was better at devoting a workplace that was calm and felt very calm and was just, you know, you could focus on what you needed to do and there was a lot of teaching going on. And so the difference was, you know, for us, and it was funny because like for him, he would come into come into my um, teams and it would be disconcerting to him. And he'd have difficulty with that culture until we figured out like, look, just let me do my thing and let, you know, the everything's there that needs to be there. He goes, yeah, I'm just not used to like, well, what do the numbers say? And it's like, numbers are great. Then stay the fuck off my floor. Like, you know, we, we were friendly <laughs> enough that I could say, just look, just, just go away. Like we got this handled, you know, if there's a yep. problem, come to me, we'll fix that. And if we can't, then obviously then you come in and we'll do what you need to do. But like those things, those things happen in every culture and every management environment. And you, you, learning how what your strengths and weaknesses are and how to leverage that is a process and these guys rarely have time to even learn that until they've already been fired and yep and then we don't rehire that so we either yep. we don't rehire some of them like gms which is yep the big mistake or if it's coaches you hear people complain about them being retreads retreads but yeah. the retreads might may have learned the most that they needed to learn yep so, you know, I just had literally an epiphany as you're discussing this. So if you're an NFL team and your owner legitimately says, don't worry about money. I just want to win. I want to develop long-term, da-da-da. Would it not make sense to say, okay, I'm Andy Reid. I'm obviously the play caller. I'm the offensive coordinator. And whoever my defensive coordinator is, there's a guy named, uh, let's see, uh, maybe it's Mark Tressman. Or there's a guy named uh, D uh, Dom Capers, who are pretty much retired in terms of their time in the league. They, they're in their late 60s. What if they came in, they didn't have a role on the staff. They were advisors. And each week on offense, your running back coach, your tight end coach, your offensive line coach, every position coach had to come up with a game plan and build the call sheet and submit it to them. Because you're a coordinator, Andy doesn't have time to read that or worry about it. And Mark can sit with each of them and say, no, this is why you're doing this wrong. You can't worry about these play calls. Let them learn from somebody like Mark, who half of the offenses he's ever coordinated finish in the top five every year. <laughs> right. So yeah. Mark could literally look at and take, okay, tight end coach, you don't have a freaking clue. What you're trying to do here, your game plan, it's, it's miserable. Yeah. But imagine if you did that over over time, every year, these guys wouldn't step in when they finally got that chance and be completely unprepared. Yeah. And remember, we talk about a lot of the time that these guys work enormous hours, but a lot of the hours they work aren't efficient because they're almost finding something to do. Well, here's something they can do, and you're not wasting the offensive coordinator's time. He doesn't have to be there. Yeah. Let a senior guy like Tressman or or if, if Bud Carson were around or, or Bill Walsh or somebody who is – retired but still wants to be in the game let them be sort of a mentor to all of the guys submit your game plan by wednesday game plan by thursday i need your play card and then we're going to watch film together one night thursday night or friday afternoon which is the dead time everybody leaves early friday afternoon to one night at home for dinner well the guys that really want to get ahead and learn how to coordinate you watch film with mark yep. and he'll go through for two hours he'll watch film and say this is why your call sheet is bad or I really like these ideas, but this isn't going to work. That way, when that time comes, maybe it's five years down the road when they become a coordinator, they've spent five years doing game plans, yeah. five years learning about what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. To me, and I literally just thought of this when you were talking, why wouldn't you, if you're an organization that's hiring assistant special teams coaches, assistant O-line coaches, why wouldn't you have a senior advisor on offense and defense? Yeah to teach your position coaches how to become coordinators. Yeah, it would be great. I think it's a great idea, you know, and it's and it's one of those things that probably wouldn't be too expensive to do. Um, no, you, these, you, guys, these guys would probably do it for a hundred. Yeah, because it's a, it'd be, 
they'd like to stay in touch with the game. They have all these skills and they'd have an easier schedule, you know? So it's not, it's a cake schedule. They'd be around the game still. They can impart their knowledge. They would feel great about doing it. Yeah, it's a great idea. You know, I, I love it. Because it's the same thing to me, like when we think about scouting, to me it's like, why aren't you having continuous education with scouting players? Why aren't yep. you Why aren't you having times where you have downtimes with certain coaches to make sure they're watching in the room with your scouts so you know that everybody's on the same page? Why aren't yep. you meeting at least a couple of times a year with everybody together who needs to be together from the, from the um, coaching aspect to the front office aspect to the scouts aspect and the positional coaches and saying, these are the things we're starting to realize are more valuable than what we've been looking at. Hot, you know, yep. let's let's look at a couple of players together, pro and college, and say, what what did this guy used to be like? What is he like now? How's that different? Are these things projectable, and is it easier to learn? What's hard to learn? What's hard to teach? What's easier to teach? What style of players where it's easier to learn and harder to learn? So that we can learn all these things, have a book on that, and know when we're when we're out the door and scouting these high school or these college players, we can look at it and say, "Look, you know, this kid looks great on paper. He hits all the Bill Parcells, you know, fun notes about rules of quarterbacking. The problem is." is that you know these techniques suck it's hard to learn it's going to be hard to learn it's actually impacting his accuracy per percentage because you know if you when you chart the games and you realize that he has a calvin johnson-esque type of receiver who's literally responsible for about 4.7 percent of this kid's completion percentage and if you took that away took these specific catches away from it he's completing passes at 55.5 percent <laughs> you know maybe we need to take a second look at this guy like these are things that you could be you would get out of that that yep. that teams aren't getting out of it but but one place where it seems like that teams have figured this out is pro days like knowing that pro days and combine are different animals and i would love for you to talk about you know, from your experience in the NFL with as, you know, director player personnel for the Elks, what, how do pro teams regard, differentiate the combine from the, from pro days and why, and what makes, and, and anything you'd like to add about pro days and their value? Well, firstly, the, the, the biggest thing I bring up, and I think I brought it up on your show in the past, and I really believe this to my heart of hearts is, NFL teams don't really get upset anymore about the kids that don't want to work out at the combine and choose to work out at the school because it's accepted practice. But I will tell you, in my way of thinking, it makes zero sense when you just, if you're an analytics person, if you just look at it from an analytics point of view, if you go to the combine, unless you are, and basically if you're going to the combine, there's an interest from the NFL. So if you have a bad workout, most likely there's still going to be scouts at your pro day. But if you skip your pro day or you skip the combine workout and you put it all on your pro day and you wake up that morning and you feel like heck because the meal you ate last night was not great and you don't perform great on your pro day, even if unless you're one of the top 10 or 15 kids in the draft, the odds of them being able to get a second pro day are virtually none. So uh, yeah. what what is the harm? in working out twice as opposed to once. And I get, trust me, most players do better at their pro days. And it just, a lot of it comes from comfort level. You're in your dorm room. It's the place you've been going to for anywhere from two years to six years. You you're know the, the field. You're in the same building, you know the field, you know the coaches, you're used to everything about it. So the comfort level's there. I get all of that. I totally get it. And the fields are different and NFL teams understand this. You have. They adjust for the 40 times because of the surface, whether it's fast grass, slow grass, field turf, track, which NFL teams don't want you running on track, but certain schools insist, whatever it may be. NFL teams understand that they can adjust. So they're, they're a different ball of wax. Um, the pro days have value um, because you get to spend individual time with kids. If you're a staff that wants to see a kid or wants to really get into his head, you can meet him the night before have dinner with him. You can spend time after practice. You can put him through position-specific drills at the end of the pro day to really get to know the kid. There's a lot of value in pro days. It's not just the testing numbers. Those are great and it's wonderful. And there is value because you want to use your analytics to try to weed out certain numbers that correlate to lack of success. 
But to me, it's just I don't think people understand that I know I've gone on tangent here. Why wouldn't you take both opportunities to impress as opposed to just your pro day? To me, the inherent risk of it all being on one day is so much higher than your risk of performing so badly at the combine that nobody ever wants to see you work out at your pro day. Yeah. And it makes sense because teams are going to understand if you have a bad pro day and a good combine or a good com bad combine and a good pro day and they adjust the numbers and it's still good or great, they're going to go, it was just a bad day. Yeah, Exactly. The only thing that teams will always tie together is, and I shouldn't say all teams because I don't know every team's computer system, but I know what the Browns, we had this and other teams have told me they do, is the weight and the 40 time are always connected. Because years ago, people would try to get that weight up at the combine. They might run a little slower than their pro day would happen. They'd run faster, 15 pounds lighter, and the systems wouldn't lock them in. Nowadays, most teams' weight and 40 times are together, which I get. But why, to me, you have two chances to impress instead of one. Yeah. And I understand the com- I get every reason for wanting the pro day, but to me, the more chances I get to impress somebody, the better I'm, I feel I'm going to do. Um, I will say that pro days are a great opportunity for you to really learn about individual players, how they carry themselves, how they interact with their teammates. Um, are they supportive of the rest of their guys? Do they follow the directions of how things are being done? All those different things. It helps to get a bigger picture for the kid. At the combine, it's hard to get that because there's so many kids it's such a regimented process. You don't really get any of the kids' personality. At the pro day, you get a little bit more, even though they're stressed and nervous. You do get a little bit of a feel, especially after the testing is done and they're doing position drills. You get a little feel for the kid, and that's part of why you're going there. Yeah, it's fascinating. And one of the things that you you touched upon kind of ends with our helps us end with our final subject here, because um, you talk about weight and forty time now. Um, Old Miss running back Zach Evans, who was a, I believe, a five-star recruit out of Kyle, out of high school, went to TCU, and watching his TCU tape, there are things that he does that he was doing that Bijan Robinson needed another year to figure out, from what I saw on tape. Wow! In terms of like, now he was listed at 5'11", 212 pounds at TCU. Comes to the combine, he's five eleven, two o two. Uh, somebody I know who I feel pretty good about as a as an evaluator of running backs from what I've seen thus lately just in the media is by the name of Noah Hills. Um, you know, I saw him on Twitter mention, I wouldn't be surprised if he cut some weight to try and run, but then he got nicked up and opted not to work out because he was a little bit, he, he got a little bit hurt, so he's waiting until his pro day. But th- when I watch him on tape, there's no way this kid's 202 pounds when he's playing at his full weight he's because he runs over too many people so you know i looked at the analytics of my own tracking and charting and and certainly he's in the upper i would say probably in the upper you know 15 to 20 percent or if not 10 percent of guys after contact in in this class so he certainly does that supports what he thinks and then from what i've seen on you know obviously i saw that all based on film what i was watching um, and to be honest, he's one of those guys that he reminds me a lot of kind of Clinton Portis, Aaron Jones, Dalvin Cook, guys who are who aren't big and maybe enter the league in that 200, 195 pound range, but can get bigger. And when they do, they still play quick. They still they have that vision footwork kind of link that's really good. Um, and they're also skilled in all other aspects of their play. And when he's on the field, I honestly think he's as good as any prospect in this class. Now, the thing about Zach Evans is fascinating is that he went to Ole Miss. Um, he ended up getting a little banged up. Their offensive line, I didn't think was all that great. And they used him kind of in a one-dimensional aspect and have a, had a freshman by the name of Quinshawn Judkins, who's like a bruiser. Who, with some speed, who might be one of the two best freshman running backs in the nation last year, who basically had took the lead in that job. Okay, which to me wasn't a big blow on Zach Evans because I think Zach Evans is is excellent. But the fascinating thing about him is you have this weight drop, 
He didn't run. When he was in high school, he was recruited by every major top, you know, top five school. And he had this very circuitous route and had apparently it was, he kept changing his mind with where he was going, committing and changing his mind. He was at the Under Armour game and like was great, but like ended up changing his mind. Um, there were reported run-ins with high school coaches. The high school coaches said the right things and said, he's a great kid. It got, it wasn't that big of a deal. It got straightened out what they were, but you had that. Then he's at TCU. Next thing you know, he's at Ole Miss. Then he's not even really, he's the co-starter at best. And th there's all these thoughts about he's this mercurial kid who might be somewhat immature. When you hear stuff like this, I mean, obviously you're going to get to talk to the recruiters and to the coaches and to teammates and see what, get a sense of what this kid's really like. But when you hear something on the surface like that, you know, is that usually is there, there's smoke there that needs to be investigated at least? Well, a hundred percent you have to investigate because you never want to be the team that your guy goes into the school, he talks to one guy and he says, yeah, he's an immature kid and we've had issues and that, and you take that and that's your only source and you put that in any kid. Well, first any kid you got to do your homework on, but any kid that's transfer struggled picking where he was going, ended up not becoming the guy his final year. That's where you got to dive deep. I mean, that's where in the perfect example, there was a kid in last year's CFL draft that there was a lot of things going on about him that I ended up speaking to nine people at the school, seven that were still there, two that had left. And I always like to talk to coaches that were with the kid but are no longer there because his success doesn't impact their future or failure. So they're willing to talk sometimes more honestly because you have to find out the big picture. Is this kid just a kid that is late maturing? We all know when we were 17, 18, 19, most kids are stupid. I was stupid. So when you're young and dumb, that's going to happen. So you want to find out what's the kid's heart like? Is he a good human being? If he is a good human being, is it just immaturity? Or yeah. is this a kid that everybody you speak to says, this is a troublemaker? And a perfect example, I, can't, I won't name the player, but there was a player recently that I was told to investigate um, because there was something, if you look him up on Yahoo, it shows up that there'd been a major situation. I speak to people at the school and they said to a man, if you were to line up every player at this powerhouse school from their biggest star to the last guy on the roster, they said he would have been one of the top two or three for this kid's never going to be in trouble a day in his life. The best kid you'd ever deal with. We know this happened. We still can't believe it happened. The kid took responsibility, but he's a great kid. He made a dumb decision. The more people you talk to and the more you can find out, that's your whole thing. So with Evans, maybe he's a great kid who just was going through immaturity like we all do at 17, 18, 19. On the other hand, maybe he's the kid that literally thinks he's better than Eric Dickerson already. Right. And that everybody should be catering to him. And he's a little bit of a knucklehead. Well, that's what you have to find out. And that's where the good scouts dive deep. You don't just talk to the one person at a school and say, okay, I got my story. I'm good to go. You talk, especially anytime there's a transfer, Anytime there's something about playing time changing when they're as the further they go, it should be getting more, not less. When you start seeing things like that, that tells you alarm bells doesn't tell you it's automatically bad, but alarm bell says, just like sort of, we talked about, we've done that. We did the show, I think two years ago on the Wonderlic. a bad Wonderlic does not mean you're stupid, but a single digit Wonderlic alarm bell say, let me find out why. Yeah. And that's exactly what, when you have a trail of weird things, just find out why. Yeah. There could be tons of reasons. I remember finding out a kid had transferred two different times. Well, he was living with a gal. They had a kid together and she had issues that came up in her life that forced her to be in two different cities. So they had to move. So it wasn't anything the kid did. He was being responsible, but he jumped from one school to another school to another. And immediately we think, why is this guy at three different schools in three different years? You do the research, it's no problem. Yeah. So all it means is do your homework. And I think that's great. And the way, and I think I would contrast that with, I'm going to guess this more than anything. And so I think with big media, big media scouting, and you hear them talk about things, they're getting this secondhand. 
They're not or getting it for, or third or fourth. And that's exactly right. Because what you're talking about is saying, all right, I'm going to go to the recruiting coordinator. Then I'm going to go to the position coach. Then I'm going to go to the head coach. Then I'm going to go to some teammates. Let me find some people who have no skin in the game now with any of these things who knew this kid and ask them to see if what they say actually matches up with what's going on here because he has no, he's not going to look bad if it comes back on him if he says, yeah, this kid's a good good kid and he's not. And then yeah, I'm well, going to, yeah. And I'll give you the perfect example. I don't mean to cut you off, but no, the please. perfect example, everybody should remember this, and I'm sure you do. Jimmy Smith was a first-round pick of the Ravens yeah. out of Colorado. And he's been a model citizen and a great guy and a great player. When he was coming out, the per, the media on draft day talked about how he was falling because he was a bad kid, a bad character. Whereas in reality, when you spoke to the people at Colorado, they loved Jimmy. They talked about him as leader, the guy you want in your locker room, the perfect type teammate that you want. It just so happened that this was 15 years ago when marijuana use was considered in the public, in the media, they said this was your bad person. When in reality, there was nothing bad about this kid. He's literally everything you want. And teams in the NFL generally knew this and knew that he was not a problem child. And that's why when everybody starts saying, oh my God, they took a bad kid in the first round, people are on the league are like, no, he's a great kid. The coaches at the school actually said if they had to pick a kid on the roster to babysit their own children, he'd be one of them. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's a matter of doing your homework yeah. and diving deep. There are, and we all know, like I said, we were all young and dumb at one point. Find out if they were young and dumb or are there other issues that are more concerned. And sometimes I would argue that if you were training people this way, you would explain to them and say, listen, sometimes the stories that raise the red flags are the best stories that create the best character. Like yep. they're not the biggest characters that are, you know, they're actually, you've, they've, it's actually have instilled character and it makes them more appealing. So you've got to look at these because either you're going to find out that they're not worth our team, or you're going to find out that we better take this kid. Like it's, yep. it's, it oftentimes it's going to be one or the other as a result of that. And so it's an, it's just like crisis being an opportunity type of, Maximum, yep, 100%. Maximum, yep. this, is, this is a perfect example of that. So listen, you know, always just a great conversation. You know, we, we've run out of time and always tend to go a little bit over, which is what we love doing on the show, <laughs> but I can't keep Russ all day. He's got it. With a few tangents. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I had to, <laughs> I had to call a couple of audibles. So, but you know, we had a, we had a good time doing this. Of course, the rookie scouting portfolio is in the works. I am working through the running back chapter, quarterback chapter is being edited right now. We will be available April 1st, um, like it has been for the past 17 years. For year 18, you can get it for $21.95 at mattwaldman.com. My dog agrees. If you hear him, he's telling you he needs some bones. Right. He so says it's a great value. He, he says it does, and he's <laughs> he's burying bones in the back in the, in in the backyard right now because he's a rescue and he wants to make sure that he's going to have enough. You know that we're going to have <laughs> enough sales for the coming year. But I think we're going to be okay. We appreciate. Those of you who, um, you know, once you once people get this, they tend to stay as customers, and I'm really appreciative of that. Again, you can learn more about it at mountwaldman.com. And thank you, everyone, on behalf of Russ and myself. We appreciate you guys listening. Love the feedback, and we'll be on in a couple of weeks.